Hey, Brian, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Even better, um, <laughs> really. Um, b before we start, you know, with the less important thing, so the yeah. most important thing of interest is what was your first computer? My first computer? Yes. Oh, boy. Well, I'm old. So uh, Commodore 64. Wow. This was my dream machine. Okay. Uh, it was uh, like 100 years ago. Um, I, I lived in a small town in uh, rural Canada, <clears throat> and uh, mm. I, uh, I was always interested in automation, uh, read a lot of science fiction as a kid, and then the Commodore 64 came out. That was really the first sort of production computer that a, that a young nerd could get their hands on, and um, I bought one with the tape drive, so it had a cassette mm -hmm. tape. Data set. Is the correct, I think, name, right? You know, data set. data set. Wasn't it the name the data set? Was it? Okay, I don't remember. It was a cassette drive. That's what I remember. It was, yeah, uh, um, I think that data set was the, this, the product name of from Commodore. I have to look uh, it up. But Okay, okay. I don't, I don't remember, but it was just a little box. And I was able to do things like um, write code that talked back to me, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, uh, and then... Um, in high school, we had an Apple II. Uh, Sorry, you're going too fast. What interests me, science yeah. fiction. Yeah. Which authors or books you read as a, as a kid? Uh, let's huh. see. Well, all the comic books. Every single one you can imagine. Um, and then um, I read a lot of... <sighs> the names are escaping me now. A lot of books with robots. Jesus. What is that? What is that? I can't remember. Um I remember Robert Heinlein read a lot of that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't remember. I'm drawing. So, oh, always, always interesting. So this is uh, this is science yeah. fiction, and yeah, yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. And uh, you wished a C64, or you just got one? Oh, I bought one. Yeah, um, I went down to uh, the local uh, mall there uh, in Penticton, British Columbia, called Cherry okay. Lane, and uh, <laughs> bought the uh, bought it for. From uh, it was the Bay, so Hudson's Bay Company uh, bought my Commodore 64 from Hudson's Bay Company, and took it home to my little uh, house on an orchard out there. And okay, Canada. so yeah, yeah, sounds actually really interesting. It's almost like a you no, know, like a, a movie, right? So small, small village in Canada, lots of nobody, snow. Yeah, nobody works with computers there ever. Anything. I was, I, I swear, I was the only one. Um, what is your first action? You played games or tried, you know, automate robots or what? There were no games um, at the time. It was just a computer um, and you could basically write your own code. And what did I write? I wrote these silly things like I would have a, uh, something that wrote a, an inspirational quote that I liked. Mm -hmm. And then there was like a raindrop that would drop down. Uh, from the left side of the screen to the right okay. and sort of move down. But this so is already like sophisticated, actually. Really rudimentary animation and <laughs> things like that. I, I don't even remember much about the code itself, but uh, stuff like that. So I would do things like making a uh, an X bop, you know, bounce around the screen and things like that. In basic, of course. Yeah, in basic, yes. It was Commodore Basic, yes. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, but I mean, it was the raindrops and whatever. This was, was really sophisticated. So uh, first time, I, what what I did, I just you know, played with for loops and and stuff like that. And so what happened? But yeah. Well, 
well, that's what I used. I used four loops. Uh, I think I can't remember to actually make the the raindrop. You yeah. know, I learned the concepts of coding basically mm -hmm. from that. Uh, back in those days, uh, you know, a hundred years ago, there was, wasn't much in the way of resources. You bought books from your local bookstore or magazines, uh, mm -hmm. and that's all you could do. And there wasn't like a Commodore 64 magazine. It was, mm -hmm. uh, you basically had to buy a book that would give you basic programming commands. Mm -hmm. And then you try the commands and save them on your cassette drive and come back the next day. It was, now that I think about it, it was pretty frustrating. Uh, back then. <laughs> it was, you know, cause it was a lot of time uh, to make, to see if something was going to work, but yeah. And you enjoyed, you know, the time as a kid in a small village in Canada, or was it like uh, you wanted, you know, to to move to to, to a big city, or w what's the memories? Because uh, for me, it sounds like fun, you know, small village, Canada, maybe beautiful landscape, what I imagine right now, and uh, nice it, winters, and I don't know, lots of crazy stuff. It, it was a beautiful setting. It, it was um, back in those days; it was all fruit trees, Mm -hmm. uh, and ah, so okay. we had uh, or we had an orchard with cherries and plums and apples and pears and peaches. Uh, now, now mm -hmm. it's Canada's wine country. Okay. Uh, so there's a bit of trivia for you. Canada has a wine country. Uh, it's called the Okanagan Valley, and it's a beautiful lake in the middle. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, they have vineyards. They've, they've torn out most of the orchards and they've replaced them with vineyards. So beautiful setting. But you know what? As a kid, I couldn't get out of there quick enough. I just, okay. you know, it was <laughs> a small town and uh, I wanted to, you know, I, I was drawn to the excitement of the big city as, mm -hmm. as young people are. And uh, so I moved from there to Vancouver, British Columbia, which is just mm -hmm. over the mountains uh, on the coast in uh, Canada. And uh, worked there, lived there, and uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it was it was an okay place. I mean, thinking back on it, I still go back now. Back then, I didn't appreciate it at all. I was mm -hmm. just, uh, like I said, I couldn't, couldn't wait to get out. Didn't seem like it was... Um, uh, you know, they, they, they produce farmers and lumberjacks. That's basically what the city at the time. Okay. Produced. Uh, and, and you know, the hockey team was a big deal. And I was just not into any of that. I was into technology and, and, uh, other interesting things. And, uh, for me anyway, and, uh, I just, uh, Vancouver was more of a place I could go. But, okay. Yeah. What happened, you know, um, language wise. So I just started with basic with the droplet. Yeah. And what happened between the droplet and Vancouver? So what is your trajectory? You know, basic, what what you tried to to build with basic or what was, uh, well, I'm just interested to know, between yeah. droplet and Vancouver, what happened? Yeah, well, I mean, there wasn't much. So Commodore Basic, that's what I did at home. And then in high school in Penticton, this little town, I uh, signed up for the computer science course, um, which I failed, by the way. Uh, and, uh, I, it's, it, they had, a two Commodore, no, two Apple computers, Apple two E mm -hmm. with a, um, it had to use paper cards to load your applications into the, into mm -hmm. the application. And the reason I failed at is, is I was working at the time, uh, and I couldn't get lab time that was compatible with my work schedule. And so I just wasn't able to create the programs on these paper cards uh mm -hmm. and uh, so it wasn't like i didn't know what i was doing i just i didn't have time to do it so i actually failed the course which is kind of embarrassing funny looking back at it but at the time it was really depressing um 
but yeah, it was, uh, I wasn't able to write the application. So you had to write these cards. You had to run them through and see if they worked. And you had to book lab time to do that on one of two computers. And there was like 30 students. And um, yeah, I just didn't, didn't get enough time to write the cards and load them in and see if they were going to work and all that. So it's crazy. I didn't knew that uh, actually Apple is working what a punch cards, like, you know, from the, from the yeah. old systems. Yeah. Interesting. You wrote it with a pencil, you scrubbed, uh, you, you marked little, little things with a pencil and uh, that's how you wrote the applications. There was no storage on the uh, Apple two E's. Uh, you literally, the storage was your paper punch cards, and you load. So it was them the, the Apple pencil, right? So it was the first one. I would say What's it's that? the one. The the Apple pen, you know, the Apple pencil was was the first one. You know, like the product right now on the iPad. So now, oh, you, yeah, you, <laughs> you yeah. the first one for for it, the card. It was just yeah, just a plain old pencil and uh, Apple Soft Basic is what you wrote in, and uh, so I was already sort of primed for that. But uh, anyway, so that was high school. I uh, went on to work in um, in Vancouver in the hospitality industry, working in hotels and things as a night auditor. So back then, this is how long ago it was, it's the early 80s, um, and there weren't a lot of computers around anyway. And if you did want to do work with computers, uh, it wasn't really well paid. Uh, and it was almost entirely accounting. You know, of course, you hear now about, you know, the, the uh, trajectory for uh, the early NASA moon launches and things like this. They make movies about that kind of thing. But that was like 100 people. Then the, the rest of the folks out there in the world uh, basically did accounting. We did accounting systems for uh, large companies, uh, for hotels and things like that. So uh, I was an auditor at a hotel, just basically working the computer, making sure that the uh, numbers added up from the day is really boring mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, it was accounting. It was just accounting mm -hmm. with automation. Um, and then uh, I actually left Vancouver and I went to England. Uh, I lived in London for about a year and a half. And that's where I started working with, um, I was working on a system 38s back then, IBM system 38s uh, mm -hmm. sort of moved ahead. And, um, doing accounting uh, and working for this treasury department of a company over there. Uh, and I, they had this thing, they, it was part of the deal with IBM. They had this thing called an IBM PC mm -hmm. and uh, nobody knew quite what to do with it. Uh, I started playing with it. I loaded up, um, I loaded up Lotus one, two, three yes. uh, and VisiCalc. Mm -hmm. uh, on this thing. And uh, they had the floppies and everything there. They had bought some enterprise agreement. And so they had a stack of these old floppies and they had uh, uh, all kinds of stuff there. So I started playing with it and I was able, I was sold right away because I was actually able to do my job on the IBM PC, which was basically reconciling numbers and stuff like that. Uh, using Lotus one, two, three with the slash menu and everything. Um, I was able to do that really quickly and easily. In fact, I could get all of my work done that I used to do, uh, with, uh, manual processes and mainframes. I could get it all done in like an hour 
on this mm-hmm. IBM PC with a spreadsheet and I could save it on a floppy and I could go back to it the next day and come back. A lot of the, the processing we were doing at the time, um, your, your mainframe storage was very limited. So you couldn't really load a lot of things onto the mainframe. So this actually allowed me to like do all some prep work and then just put my small amount of stuff that I needed to do on the mainframe. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I was sold immediately. I was able to do all, all the work that used to take a day and an hour. And it was like really mindless, mind numbing addition of numbers and things like that, that the spreadsheet just did. So it was amazing. I knew this was going to be a big thing. So I started working with that. Um, Lotus one, two, three, uh, D base, Mm-hmm. Work D Base and um, the Clipper and Fox Pro and all these applications. Uh, yeah, and that was a that was a great year. In um, but did you work for IBM or with IBM? No, no it was just uh, it was an oil, it was actually an oil company. So they um, they created the they they were actually doing the exploring of the Blair oil fields, which is the oil and gas fields in the North Sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I'm sure everyone, well, most people in Europe are familiar with. Uh, but uh, at the time, we we're just exploring and trying to figure out what to do with them. Uh, you know, these days, obviously, there's <laughs> it's not as prestigious. Back then, it was a very prestigious job. Uh, mm-hmm. These days, it's not as as uh, prestigious just because of uh, environmental concerns and things like that. But back then, it was it was nowadays really- you will no search for a good place for wind farms or something like this. It would be also prestigious, no? Yes, yes, yes. So back then, it was really solving a serious problem, which was uh, they didn't have enough energy for for Europe and North America. I mean, Europe and North Europe uh, to be able to uh, to basically run their operations. And England needed energy as well. It was. Uh, was a thing. So it was a big thing for England at the time. So I was shuttling between London and Aberdeen all the time with uh, data that I needed to use in both places, mm-hmm. things like that. But yeah, uh, keeping track of the exploration and managing the costs for the exploration. That was my job. Why only one year were you spent there? So um, I had a visa. <laughs> so okay. I had a working holiday visa. Uh, I was Canadian. So you get this working holiday visa, which is good for a year and a half. Uh, and then I went uh, backpacking all over Europe. So, you know, back in those days, it was before the European Union. And uh, so I got that for the UK. And then each country in Europe was independent. So I was able to go. I uh, got my interrail pass, which most okay. Europeans would be familiar with. And went went traveling around Europe um, for about what, four or five months. So, so then by the time I'd uh, worked for a year and done my pass, uh, for interrail and just kind of, you know, goofed off around Europe for six months. Uh, Where you I, were? Which which country you done. visited? Uh, which countries you visited in Europe? Oh God, uh, every single one of them. Um, so I started out in France. I I took my bicycle. So I okay. bicycled from Boulogne, France, up to Malmo, Sweden. Uh, wow! Yeah, that was fun. Uh, you know, uh, all through. Um, uh, Belgium, Holland, uh, Germany, Denmark, up through Sweden, um, all over England too. I bicycled all over England for about a month and a half. Uh, uh, back then, you know, you, you stay at youth hostels and, uh, there was one every 10 or 20 miles. I had my map all made out and, uh, was able to, uh, to get around, but that was a wonderful experience too. I mean, something I wouldn't, I always recommend that to folks, kids here in North America. I actually did a, uh, event here a while ago for some, uh, 
kids in Las Vegas, where I live, uh, and um, talking to them about the future and what they want to do. And I asked them, how many people are familiar with a gap year? Which is, you know, uh, for mm-hmm. those of you who might not be familiar with it on the podcast, a gap year is something where you, you take off and you don't uh, – study or work for a year you just kind of figure out what you want to do it's you know obviously a privileged thing to do if you can do it but um uh doesn't cost a lot if you do it the right way Mm -hmm. um and uh only about a quarter of the kids there were familiar with what a gap year was so i had them look it up i think i changed a few lives there maybe yeah uh, here in North America, you know, there's a lot of focus on just, okay, so you're going to, you graduated high school, so you've got two months off and now you're going, you know, you can do a summer job and then you'll start your university and they don't really take a lot of time to figure out exactly what they want to do. But uh, Okay. Is the gap year between, uh, uh, well, what is it, uh, high school and university usually yeah. or after, after university? Usually, usually. Yeah. Okay. When I was living in London, I was with... Uh, uh, I was sharing an apartment with uh, nine New Zealand's New Zealanders and Australians, and they were all on their gap year. You know, sort okay. of uh, they came over and they were working like casually, but um, they were mostly just uh, having fun and backpacking around Europe and things like that. Cool. Were you also um, in Eastern Europe or just Western Europe? I only went to Western Europe. Oh, that's a story by itself. So um, back <laughs> then, of course, um, there was a very strict. Uh, visa requirements um, mm-hmm. for the USSR, which was what is, it was still there. Um, and uh, you would have to not only get a visa far in advance, but also tra- change money into rubles uh, mm-hmm. based on how many days you were going to be there. And I, I was a poor slash cheap uh, mm-hmm. traveling kid. And uh, I was like, okay, so I can go to all these Western Europe countries relatively cheap. Or I can pay for this visa and change all this money and go to Europe, to Eastern Europe. And, and, you know, there wasn't much of a selling point. I did, however, when in the 90s, I did, I don't know, this is skipping forward a little bit. But uh, in the 90s, I did go uh, after the Berlin Wall fell. I was mm-hmm. there just literally a month after it fell. Okay. Uh, back in the days when they would rent you a hammer and you could chip a piece of the wall off for yeah. yourself. I still have a bag of that. Okay. Uh, and, yeah, that was fun. Um But uh, uh, I didn't really get to Eastern Europe during that time. It was something that people didn't do. People used to, some of the folks that I was living with in London went and um, it didn't sound too attractive. So it was very um, inexpensive. And some of these kids would take just a few pairs of jeans Mm -hmm. and sell them on the black market in Russia, Mm -hmm. in the USSR. And uh, that would finance their entire trip. (laughs) <laughs> wow okay it was it was just something i mean back then i mean um uh vinyl records were prohibited i mean it was a very repressive place back mm-hmm. then um mm-hmm. it's very very different than it is now or well i don't i want to avoid talking about that <laughs> yeah sure but um what, uh, plus it's it's but back then i'll tell you what i know from back then which it was basically uh Yeah, it was very repressive. Um, the music was, you know, limited what you could get and what you could hear and stuff like that. So people were smuggling, um, you know, records into into the USSR or cassette tapes. 
and uh, you know, and you could sell your jeans, like I say, and finance an entire trip. And it was it was kind of crazy times back then. So now, long story short, I didn't go. To the, I didn't okay. Go to <laughs> so you moved back from London back to Vancouver to? No, uh, I went to Australia. I was, <laughs> um, you know, I was working anyway. It wasn't like I took the time off the whole time. I was doing real, you know, full time work. Uh, so I got another visa. Um, I liked the visa process. So my my UK visa expired. So I had to do something. And I uh, did that, that traveling around for a few months in Europe. Uh, and then I went to Australia. So I went to Australia and uh, I did actually go back to Vancouver for like a couple of months because there was Expo 86, which was this big world exposition in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. uh, and I did a little bit of work there and got all my arrangements in. And then I went to uh, Australia for a year and a half as well. I worked in Australia um, and this time I was working on PCs. So I was working on D-Base, Clipper, Foxboro mm -hmm. uh, and um, writing applications for a big insurance company, actually, while I was there. So mm -hmm. about a year and a half, I lived in Sydney, Australia with some roommates uh, and worked on uh, building these applications. And then I went over to Southeast Asia, uh, Thailand, mm -hmm. Malaysia, Indonesia, um, Singapore. And then I finally came home around 1990. So, yeah, okay, it was a while. Yeah. And you still worked, you know, with uh, D-Base and usually databases, right? Yeah. Well, back then, so when I got back to Vancouver, uh, Fox Pro was the big deal back then. Mm -hmm. uh, Clipper was great because it was compilable. So you could compile mm -hmm. it and build an application and distribute it. Um, but I had actually built sort of a basic um, replication model uh, when I was working in Australia where... And, <laughs> This is before uh, networks. So um, you used disk drives, little mm -hmm. three and a half inch disk drives. Uh, and when you put the drive in the slot and ran the application, it would replicate the data. It would do a read and a write and it would void any conflicts and uh, update the data for you. So mm -hmm. that was this little basic replication engine that I built. Um, and, uh, I used that. It was written in uh, Clipper mm -hmm. and with an EXE, so you could run it executable anywhere. Uh, and uh, then I actually adapted it for FoxPro because a lot of people were doing uh, FoxPro applications. So I adapted it for FoxPro, and it was an add-on, a replication engine for FoxPro. It was sort of like an add-on that you could sell. Uh, FoxPro was one of the first open-source uh, environments out there. So, I didn't knew that FoxPro was open source. I thought it was a... Well, the FoxPro itself wasn't open source, but there was a bunch of applications on top of FoxPro okay. that you could buy. One that comes to mind is um, there was a accounting system. I think it was called ADT. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was ADT. Uh, and you bought, you could buy a compiled version mm -hmm. or you could buy the open source version mm -hmm. the open source version was much more money so it's not open source the way open source is now or it was free uh open source was actually more than the compiler. yeah it was a commercial with source code so this is why you had to pay <laughs> yes. more yes okay. thank you yeah so it was commercial with source code and um i used my replication engine i actually wrote that uh, in fox pro and then I was able to sell it for the binary or the uh, uh, 
mm-hmm. for with the source code and uh, made sort of a decent living from that. I added it to the ADT. They had sort of a marketplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were like the by far the most successful application running on Fox Pro at the time. Uh, and so we actually created it with the marketplace. Um, so this would have been 1990 or so. So okay. still like netware was just starting to come into. No, this that, before, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like before Ethernet, before Token Ring. Token Ring was around, but it was very rare. It's usually just you know, for things and you had these least lines you use to connect to everything. Uh, and, uh, so, um, you still had to replicate your data somehow. Uh, and, uh, so this replication engine was kind of successful. Uh, and I added it. To- you knew how it worked. So were like commands, you know, read, write or how you did it. So you still remember the algorithm? Oh, uh, it was all well to the end user it was automatic. So you put the floppy in, you run the application, and it, you would have to map the drive to that specific one, and it would actually read and write the data for you. So let's say you have a sales data, uh, and it's coming from, you know, uh, it, you have August sales data, and now you need to add uh, September sales data. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just put the floppy in, you run it, and it would actually uh, check to see if there's any updates to any of the rows. So each row had a unique ID. And uh, check those unique IDs. And then if it had a new one, it added the new one. If it had a deletion, it would delete it. If it couldn't find the old Deletion one. is hard, right? Because if something yeah. was deleted, yeah, you couldn't yeah. see this, right? You know what I mean? So deletion yeah. is often the hardest uh, doing replication. So usually what you will do, you will mark as deleted. So at least you know that exactly, something is deleted. Because if you exactly delete a ta- something in the table, an item in the table, then uh, you cannot know that something happened, right? So this is also... Yeah. So your market is deleted, uh, and there was a way to bring it back, of course, because that was sort of like an early version of the junk or the uh, uh, recycle mm-hmm. bin or the, the junk folder. Um, and, boy, I'm just trying to think back to what we did there. So there was a way to do that, and then there was a way to merge as well. So the merging was actually the trickiest part, of course. Always. Because, <laughs> yeah, because you could just simply rover, you know, overwrite one row with another, but then what happens if – one row in August was different. One item in August row was different from one item in September's row. So you had to do this little subroutine where you uh, grab the row and split it into a new set of mm-hmm. data and then checked each piece of data to see. And if it was, uh, you know, and then you'd have to check, was this the newer one or the older one? It was very, uh, that was kind of tricky. That was it's still still tricky. So there is nothing changing, you know, because it happens in optimistic logs if you if you work with uh, with databases. So the question yeah. is now who wins the first one, the last one, or do we have to merge? And if we have to merge, is already complicated because sometimes it's impossible to merge. The data doesn't make any sense, right? If you just merge, interesting. You did it for thirty years ago. Yeah, in nineteen ninety, we were doing this, uh, and yeah. it was based on floppy disks, not. You know, like now it's it's trivial. You just connect to whatever and compare it. But it was I would say hard. not that different right now, right? You, you could connect, but when you have to write to disk, now you write to network. I would say it's not the same and the same challenges, right? So, uh, yeah. The, yeah. but now you know what to do. I imagine back then you had to reinvent the wheel, right? Or, or invent the wheel, oh, yeah. not reinvent because it's very new, right? Yeah. And then it got very tricky with things like time zones. 
and uh you know yeah. you'd have to you have to use the julian date and add that to your unique id and we did all kinds of tricks to uh to, to do that as well so that was fun um by the way, what do you, what do you say with the time zones? I do the same right now. So I have UID, yeah. and I would like to make the UID sortable. So what you have to do is you have to add, you know, timestamp to the UID, and yeah. this is a this is even the name for it ULID. Uh, and uh, if you search for it, this is an a UID which is sortable. So um, you know, thirty years ago, exactly the same problem. You know, uh, yeah. yeah. Nothing changed. Yeah, this is pretty cool. So, um, and so then you become, you know, almost millionaire, right? With selling, you know, you are, you you are you are richer than the guys who sold jeans in Russia, I would say, right? Oh yeah, well, <laughs> richer than one guy who sold jeans. Yeah, the, the no, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't lucrative. So that's one thing nobody really talks about when they talk about, um, you know, uh, the 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 way that the <laughs> that the way that the uh, software business the the world of tech and the world of software evolved was it wasn't very interesting to people because it was a lot of it was accounting and it didn't pay that well <laughs> it paid maybe slightly less than an accountant would make um so there just wasn't a lot of interest obviously there's a lot of interest now because it it pays much better you know tech in general pays much better but back then there were way more lucrative ways to earn a living Mm -hmm. uh, you really had to be interested in technology to stick with it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know people who became real estate agents who uh, did all kinds of other things back then, of course, uh, and did way better than than being in tech. So, mm -hmm. so it's interesting what you say. Yeah, back then, selling software really didn't get you a lot of money. Um, it, first of all, it was much slower than it is now. That people mm -hmm. would literally mail you a check. And then you'd, you know, cash the check and make sure that it went through and then you'd mail them the software. And so now, you know, you can do uh, hundreds of thousands of transactions a day. But back then, you know, you were lucky if you got one transaction a week. <laughs> um, so, no, it didn't. It wasn't lucrative, but it did lead to a lot of new opportunities in my career. What was the name of the replication engine? You have a nice science fiction name, you know, like the replication robot or Art, no, R2-D2 was, was um, before R2-D2, actually. You know what it was called? L-R-R-P, yeah. It's yeah. called Long Range Resource Planning. That's basically what I called it originally. That's what we built it for originally. And then I just shortened it to L-R-R-P and uh, sticked with that acronym. So mm -hmm. not exciting, unfortunately, but yeah, that's the way it is. <laughs> what happened afterwards? So uh, the engine was done. So you were in Australia and Singapore, you said. So you just stick with databases or what you did? Um, I stuck with databases for a while, um, but it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't really, there was no growth there. So things moved on. And I started working with this package. This was like 1992 or 93 called Lotus Notes, huh. mm -hmm. which I, I really liked uh, for the kids out there. Um, Lotus Notes was this application where you could uh, do email and all kinds of things. It coincided with networks. So netware all of a sudden was a thing and people were installing netware. Um, I became a netware Boy, what did they call them? I got my Netware certification, mm -hmm. so I could install networks in uh, in places. 
but that was, it was kind of boring. My heart really wasn't in it. It was a way to make a living. Um, I really like software and I didn't mm-hmm. just want to be an installer. So um, I'm trying to remember the name of the For the, for the kids, Lotus Notes uh, had a really interesting replication engine. So document yes. oriented. And yes, it, it was, it. Yeah. yeah, but the interesting part is uh, it was open source or rewritten afterwards. And this is the uh, CouchDB, Apache yes. CouchDB. You can still use it. And yeah, so, so yeah, let's talk about that. Because that was, so Lotus Notes back in the day, 1992, 93, was really ahead of its time. You could attach videos. <laughs> Where would you get these videos? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you could attach videos. You could attach sound. Um uh images, graphics, uh, text files, and you could share them and send them around. So one obvious application for that was email. So they had an email engine, but they also had an application engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this ran all on top of NetWare networks. So you- Domino server, right? You remember Dom- Domino? The Domino server was- Notice Domino was, it was rebranded like 1995 or six. Oh, okay. It was called Lotus Notes, and it was created by this this company called Iris Associates. Okay. And they were purchased by IBM around, I think, 95, 96. They rebranded as – so Lotus Notes was the client, and then Domino was the server. Exactly. And the Domino server had a replication engine, and Lotus Notes before that had a replication engine, which is – I really like that. Uh, That was something that obviously I, I had already had some investment in. Uh, in my career. So I was able to pick it up. This was like new ideas for a lot of people. For me, it mm-hmm. was like, oh, yeah. uh, so I was able to set up these uh, things. And by the way, they had a lot of trouble with replication in the early days. So I did provide a lot of feedback to Iris Associates based on what I already knew. And uh, But it was a lot of fun. So I became an IBM business partner and I used to go out and set up and build Lotus Notes applications and then Domino applications and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, there was a whole business around that. There were huge conferences, you know, mm-hmm. with, uh, uh 10,000 people from all over the world in, uh, uh, Orlando, Florida every year they had a uh, Lotus fear and, uh, uh, you know, people would get together and that's where I really got started presenting. I think that mm-hmm. was the first time I presented. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Back then you had to be a, if you wanted to present at Lotus fear back then you had to be mm-hmm. an IBM certified presenter. And wow. it was a thing where you had to go through, you had to create a presentation and present it in front of like a board of people mm-hmm. and uh, pass all these tests. And then you could be certified to speak at an IBM conference. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, now that I think about it, it was, you know, it's very, very different than the way things are now. But same at Java 1. The, um, I, I, had, um, I think it was around 2007 was my first talk at Java 1. And uh-huh. it was also very strict. There was no certified presenters, but you have to submit your slides in advance. There were no reviewed. Yeah. And then and then you had like a session with, um, I don't know, an approver or someone. And, and you had you know, to explain what you would like to say. And then you were approved. So this was back then, right? So this was... And, and then, you know, funny enough, I think after Oracle bought Sun, it would become easier. But at the same time, it's really hard to present a Java one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was um, uh, It was always, a, yeah, absolutely. And, and So, you, know, so you, you, you are IBM certified presenter, right? I am an IBM certified <laughs> presenter. Yeah, it's very probably, good. I'm knowing IBM is probably in a d- database somewhere out there where you can look me up. I don't know. But I am. I am a I, IBM certified uh, presenter and also a, a principal 
uh, certified Lotus professional. Okay. <laughs> and a Lotus developer. So for Lotus professional was like the, the people who did the administration and then the Lotus developer was a separate thing. So yeah, I've got all those certifications. Not that they're worth much these days, but uh, they're still there. I learned a lot. Actually, I learned a lot mm-hmm. in the process of getting the certifications. Because mm-hmm. when you learn on the job, sometimes you don't get all the basics and all the fundamentals. So it's really actually a valuable thing to do if you're learning on the job to, to get these certifications. So, yeah. Yeah. So then I, I worked on Lotus Notes. Um, I wrote a book called uh, The Lotus Notes Programming Bible. Uh, and uh, and then I wrote another book called XML Powered by Domino. And that's where Java comes in. So that was in 1999. And it was uh, XML was all the rage. And um, we created this book. Uh, it was an IBM book called XML Powered by Domino, IBM Red Book, which was these books that IBM mm-hmm. published. One of the interesting things is they would take you, they, they called it an internship, but it wasn't really an internship. You were um, myself um, and a couple of other folks, one gentleman from Japan, uh, Yusuke Murakami and another uh, fellow American uh, were... Uh, sent to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we were put up in apartments and every day we would go in, you know, this is still the nineties. Um, so it's not like we could log in on the internet and, you know, but, uh, so you go to the office every day in, um, Cambridge, Massachusetts and write the book. So we had three months of that, three months of, uh, living and working in Massachusetts, writing that book. So it's called XML Powered by Domino. And we had a Java part of that. So there was an early Java, which we wrote in Notepad and uh, compiled via the DOS command line. Java C. Uh, that? Java C, you know, the Java C compiler command line. Exactly. Yes, Java C. Yeah, that's that's what it was. So we that's where I started with Java. Um, 1999, writing that book. You can still find the book out there, XML Powered by Domino. Uh, and uh, it was uh, it was an interesting experience. Wrote it in Adobe Frame Maker, mm-hmm. uh, which was the old, old, old uh, way of actually building books. They had a whole Was it your first there, right? Java project back then? Or was it uh... Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was I knew nothing about Java when I started uh, back then there in nineteen ninety-nine. Um, and uh, learned a lot in those three months and was able to produce the book. Uh, it was actually Yosuke Murakami, uh, who was our Java expert at the time. Uh, and he's, uh, he's from Tokyo, and he, uh, he wrote, uh, Hello, Murasaki-san, uh, Murasaki-san, if you're there. Uh, but, um, yeah, he, uh, he actually wrote most of the Java there, and I learned a lot from him. As mm-hmm. part of that, and I you would, like would, Java, so you have experience, you know, with uh, with Clipper and FoxPro, and you know, basic. Yeah. And what was the impression of Java? Was like say, okay, this is interesting, or this is just okay, boring, or no, it was interesting. Um, and it was, it was. Uh, I guess my honest impression at the time was, was wow, this is really complicated compared to uh, Clipper, or because you know you had to like uh, worry about uh, types, data types, and things like that, and it was. Uh, there's things I didn't have to worry about in the Clipper, Lotus Notes, Box Pro world. Um, and then, you know, um, but it was, you know, I could see it was the future. There was a way mm-hmm. to do things. And uh, back then it was all applets. So mm-hmm. we had Java applets that we wrote for this. Uh, and it was cool that you could actually run them on your laptop. Uh, mm-hmm. 
No, sorry, it wasn't applets yet. No, that was just apps. There was no browsers. So there was no applets yet. No, um, uh, the apple uh, Java started actually with applets. So uh, 1999, there were uh, applets for sure. So 1995, it was applets. The apps. Okay. So um, the AWT, they I think they were possible from the beginning, but you know the yeah. true apps with Swing, they started 1997. So there were applets for sure 1999, okay. and I even suspect there was uh, they were became less and less popular around 2000 because then we got to you know the server side Java stuff. But okay. uh, yeah. Java started with applet because well, it was a real. deal between uh. Sun and Netscape and. Um, and Sun wanted to have, you know, the Java in a browser. And Netscape said, okay, if you would like to have a Java in a browser, we will rename LiveScript to JavaScript. Yes. Yeah, yeah th this is uh, what happened. And uh, now we have JavaScript and we you know, we don't have applets anymore. But um, this is uh, 1995, maybe what happened. Oh, but, okay. But, yeah, no, my, my recollection of... But I'm really impressed. Uh, actually, you wrote a book in 1999 about Java. Didn't you about that at all? And IBM yeah. wanted to 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 promote Domino, I suspect, because XML back then was very popular, Absolutely. and and Java as well. So they they they, they were interested in how to push Domino forward, right? Yep, yep. So that actually led to me. So I wrote the Domino programming bible, and then after that, I wrote there's a for Wiley, uh, and then I also wrote this book called the XML programming bible which was uh, the same team, of course, at Wiley. Um, and that had a lot of job in it as well. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, XML was, was pretty cool stuff. Uh, I really liked what you could do with it. And, you know, based on my experience with, um, with uh, Lotus Notes and Domino, I had some mm -hmm. ideas of things you could do for, you know, unstructured data, uh, which is what Lotus Notes was uh, mm -hmm. for years. I'd, I'd worked with that. So, um, I was writing uh, for several years. I, I made a living as a XML consultant, basically sure. uh, writing uh, schemas, uh, generating schemas for people, and um, you know, formatting XML uh, data formats. It's uh, unstructured data formats that they could use in their applications and things mm -hmm. like that. Um, yeah, and then uh, uh, replication again. So XML replication. I started writing a little bit of a, rep a replication engine in Java for that. Um, and that led me, let's see, I want to make sure I don't skip over anything. Just one question regarding Domino, because what I also remember, it was very confusing for me, Domino, and I always wanted to know how to program the entire thing, because yeah. Domino and Lotus were very popular in Europe. So first yeah. question I wanted to ask you earlier. So what you said is that Domino came later. They rebranded the backend Lotus to Domino, or at the beginning there was no server? There was a server. So there was a Lotus Notes server and a Lotus Notes client. Okay. Uh, and the Lotus Notes, so it was like an email. Um, so mm -hmm. if you think about it like that, so Lotus Notes client was your email client, basically, mm -hmm. and you could do applications as well. But then the Lotus Notes server was where all the email was actually stored. And mm -hmm. so okay. you would replicate to from the client to the server, mm -hmm. and then the server would handle the email and the replication between different servers as well. Sure. So I set up several sort of international um, infrastructures where, you know, we had one Domino server in each location. And once mm -hmm. again, this was before, you know, the Ethernet and the Internet, really. Um, was a was a thing a real thing that you used commercially uh so we used 
the Lotus Notes and the Domino server to communicate between different offices. Mm -hmm. And uh, and how you can program Domino? I remember Lotus script, yeah. right, back then. Well, well, there were three ways. So you could use at functions, which were based on Lotus 1, 2, 3 functions. Okay. So it was basically, it's a, it looks a lot like Spring does today. So you do at, mm -hmm. you know, you do like at date, and mm -hmm. that would be, a date format. You know, you're probably familiar with Excel or yeah. Lotus, probably Excel functions. Same, the same idea. So you could write some pretty complicated applications using just at functions, but then they came out with Lotus script mm -hmm. and Lotus script was based on JavaScript. And uh, it was just basically a variant similar to TypeScript, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And that was a little more flexible. And then uh, when they were purchased by IBM, now don't quote me on the dates here. I think it was like 95, 96, 97, mm -hmm. somewhere around there. Um, then they started using Java as well. Okay. And they actually rewrote the Lotus Notes developer IDE mm -hmm. in Java. Not the Lotus Notes client, but the one that you use for software development was written in, um, in it was a variant of the Eclipse platform. Mm -hmm. So uh, you can still use Lotus Script, you can still use App Functions, but Java was a big part of that as well, obviously. So that's where Java came in really in a mainstream mm -hmm. with, um, with Lotus Notes. And I'd say it was, I'd say it was probably one of the first sort of commercial platforms for Java where you weren't mm -hmm. hand coding everything from scratch. You were just using Lotus Functions that were provided for you from IBM to actually okay. build applications. So you had several classes that were just pre-created. So you could okay. do a mail class, send mail, things like that, uh, all, all pre-built. So it's an unexpected conversation. They knew that you, you as you know, that much Java experience actually. So- uh, Yeah, yeah. It, well, I hadn't, I hadn't worked, well, that's the thing. I didn't, I know it's around 97, 96, it was available, but I didn't start using it until 1999. So I was, I still stuck with Lotus script and, um, mm -hmm. and at functions to write the applications just because it was, mm -hmm. I didn't have to learn something new, but then, uh, yeah, when I started working with it in 1999, uh, writing that book, XML powered by Domino, cause you, you had no other choice to write your uh, XML processes mm -hmm. than to use Java, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, there was really no other way to do it. Um, there was some Lotus script things, but they just called Java under the hood. So it was just easier to call Java. And, and, yeah. and then you keep doing Java, kept doing Java afterwards, or is it just? Yeah, so XML, I wrote a replication engine in XML and um, there was a company called LexisNexis. I don't know if you remember them. They're uh, Reed Elsevier. They were a um, a content syndicator back mm -hmm. then, uh, and they needed a replication engine that they could use with their data that they were mm -hmm. working with. So I'm like, oh, hey, I'm your guy. Lotus Notes. I've written replication engines. So I started writing one in XML uh, using mm -hmm. Java. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that was successful. I was going to make it into a product, but it just never, I never got around to it. I don't know. Uh, I worked for them for a while and uh, I was working as an independent consultant on XML. It's just working as an XML consultant for a while. I wrote that book, XML um, Programming Bible. Uh, that took about a year. Uh, and then uh, I started, I got a job at IBM 
So questions regarding the Samara application. Outspace too. Huh? Yeah. Because because if you have unstructured XML data, um, XML formats, it can be really challenging, you know, to, to know what to change. I assume you needed schema or something like this, right? You need a schema and the transformation engine. Yeah. So I use the schema and um, Xerxes and uh, a few other tools. Xenon, maybe? What's that? Xerxes, Xerxes and Xenon, you know, X-A-L-A-N. Yes, Xerxes yeah. and Xenon. Yep, exactly. That's exactly what you use. Uh, to um, to do the transformation uh, using uh, XML, and it just allowed you to do a lot. Do of you remember FOP? It was uh, formatting objects with XML, so you can transfer transform XML with Xenon to PDF. <sighs> I do. I do remember something about that. I done. I didn't work with it that much. Okay, so. because this was this was also uh, fun back then because you could have uh, create you no know, proper PDF documents with just uh, XML transformation, transformations. Yes. Okay, this sounds. So I, I assume it works similar to you know to your prior engine. You know, with IDs and columns is okay. Yeah. So yeah, I was able to reuse. The concepts, at least, <laughs> and um, and and that were written in Foxbro of all things, uh, and uh, and apply them to Java, and that's really how I learned Java. It was on the job building that and writing the book. So writing the book is, you know, there's something to be said about uh, uh, learning by teaching. So I had to write yeah. this book called uh, XML Programming Bible, and I just had to learn everything there was to know about Java because that was a lot of it. Um, and, and making sure that I could cover all the topics in my book with mm -hmm. Java. That was where I, I really learned Java. And then uh, writing the replication engine was a natural extension of that. And I started working at IBM. Uh, that was 1995. But before we get there, I wanted to mention about um, uh, CouchDB. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, CouchDB was something that was, uh, at the time, it was quite... Uh, controversial because it was sort of open source mm -hmm. and Damien, God, what was Damien's last Katz. name? Katz. Yeah, Damien Katz, thank you. Damien Katz uh, was the, the creator of that. He doesn't get enough credit for that. Uh, he did uh, build the, the whole thing, basically. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was based on concepts from IBM and IBM actually, I believe there was some lawsuits about mm -hmm. that. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously these days it's, it's all water under the bridge, but, uh, at the time it was quite a big controversial thing, but really cool stuff. So it really, Damien doesn't get enough credit and, and CouchDB doesn't get enough credit. You know, everyone talks about MongoDB and Couchbase and, um, what's some of the other ones? There's some other ones as well, but they were all based on CouchDB originally. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, uh, people, um, when people think about NoSQL now, almost most of the people I talk to say, oh yeah, MongoDB, you know, that's MongoDB created the concept. No, they didn't. And it was, first it was Lotus Notes and then it was CouchDB. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, so that's a interesting aside, but, um, yeah, so I started working at, um, IBM mm -hmm. and they had this, this thing called, um, it was a, tool they had called Nora, non-obvious relationship assessment. And uh, it was a, once again, sort of a massive replication engine. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they did, it was for anti-fraud and anti-terror, and they would find connections between data that weren't obvious. They had an mm -hmm. algorithm and everything. Uh, and they already had a replication engine in place that was mm -hmm. working just fine, but I was able to give them a few tweaks on that. 
Um, and that was, I, by the way, so I worked in, I, I lived in different places while I was doing all this. So I lived, oh, I think last time we, we left off in Australia, um, I went back to Vancouver and um, I was actually living in Montreal. I met my wife there and then we moved to Atlanta, Texas, Pennsylvania. And now uh, I ended up in Las Vegas uh, working at the Department of Energy. Uh, on some projects here. I don't know if anyone knows out there, but the Department of Energy actually runs all the atomic energy uh, facilities and weaponry and things like that in the U.S. So it's a very important agency. Uh -huh. uh, they had been using this tool called non-obvious relationship assessment with, uh, with uh, IBM. And um, I had some connections there and I actually, they offered me a job there to work with them. And then they were purchased by IBM. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. And, uh, was it Java uh, before IBM or it was Java before IBM? Yes. Okay. Yeah. They had actually written the original algorithm in Java. I came in towards the end of the company, uh, and actually just after they were purchased by IBM. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, uh, so I, I went from being an IBM partner to being an IBM, uh, employee and, uh, in quick, quick order and work there, uh, helping them build the application and um, helping them, not necessarily building the application, they already had it built, but just advising them on a few things. And I was sort of um, an early developer relations guy where I would go out and help them install this in different places and then have uh, and provide feedback to the product team about what we needed to do to make it better back in those days. Um, so back, of course, by now, this is a 19, no, this is a, uh, what year was that? It's gotta be 2005. Um, back then, uh, of course the internet was there, everything was there, but moving huge amounts of data on the internet was not something you did. So we had these fridge size cases They were actually used for transporting musical equipment and things. And inside of these fridge-sized cases, we had installed a whole bunch of IBM hardware. Mm -hmm. And um, when a customer wanted to do a POC or wanted an installation, we would wheel one of these things onto a truck mm -hmm. and drive it. I wouldn't personally, but the truckers would drive this thing out to the customer And I would fly in and we'd unload this thing, put it in their data center, plug it in and start running the application on their data. You know, partly it was for privacy reasons and partly it was for processing power reasons. You just it, it needed too much processing power to uh, to do what it needed to do. So it was like a it was a very early artificial intelligence algorithm, nothing like we have now. Uh, and it was also a way of of crunching data and replicating data and um, finding relationships in the data. And they had an interesting approach to replication, actually, seems we're talking about that a lot. Um, they didn't ever delete anything from the database, even if there was something there, they would add it to what they call an entity. So it was an entity relationship algorithm Uh, and they would just add it to the entity and see if there was something interesting in the old one and the new one that they needed to make a connection with. So, uh, so it was like anti-fraud. So, for example, if you had a situation, we did this for the New York Police Department where um, 
somebody who was, uh, there was a lot of anti-terror uh, back in those days. It was uh, shortly uh, after 9-11, unfortunately. And uh, so we would, you know, have some known data on somebody who was on the OFAC list, which is a list of uh, folks that we know have committed financial fraud and or terror and things like that. Mm-hmm. You can still out there. You can still find the OFAC list out there. Um, and then we'd find connections with that. So there's a phone number and there might be another phone number, then a connection phone number. We could find like burner phones and things like that. So they had all mm-hmm. these algorithms to find this stuff. Um, and like I say, it was used for anti-fraud, anti-terror. Uh, but the replication engine itself was pretty cool because it would never delete anything. It would just add it to the model basically. Mm-hmm. And then it would find things. It was miraculous how it would find things sometimes. Yeah. I think I was on the list because uh, what happened to me once, I, um, so I usually, so I've, I've always worked as freelancer. I never had time. So, um, and in one year I attended three conferences and uh, the one was in New York, but I only spent two days in New York, then two, two days in Las Vegas and like three days in San Francisco in one year. Well, three okay. conferences. Okay. And then at San Francisco airport, they told me I cannot fly back. And I said, what? why not? Oh. Said, because, you know, uh, we have to check something. And they checked and checked. And um, yeah, I could fly back. But the next time, if I wanted to go to US, I couldn't online check in. And no one told me why. And this, uh, and this was no stranger and stranger. In one point of time, um, I was, I tried to, there was a, the, one of the last Java one conferences and they say, okay, they, ca- uh, they, um, I cannot, uh, how to call it, um, there's the border control, you know, I, I cannot go through. I have to go right to the, to the police department and, uh, provide some explanation. So, um, I went there, I said, like, I don't care. I will fly back. I just really don't care. But it's okay. Well, let's see what happens, you know. And then they were like, before me, they were like, uh, people were asking, "No, were you in jail? No, I wasn't." So I go, this becomes interesting, right? And yeah. then they ask me, um, "Why you drove, you know, under influence or something?" There's like a specific, you know, specific, specific term, and yeah. in US, and uh, this is like uh, dr- d- drunk d- driving. D I'm driving under the influence. Yeah, DUI. DUI. Say, yeah. uh, why you DUI? So what's DUI? This on drive under influence or whatever. And uh, I say, I, I never had a car in the US. I never did it, right? Yeah. And then and then and then I explained what I did. And 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 the um, they were very professional actually in the US. And the um, and 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 they almost smiled, you know. And they wrote something uh, a, a long text. And I say, okay. Uh, what are you writing? I cannot tell you this. And but they 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 were smiling all the time, so they confused me. So it seems like you know yeah. my 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 unusual pattern attending or speaking at conferences for s- s- such you know short amount of time yeah. caused some I don't know suspicion. And and yeah. this was and, and but after the man the 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 you know, the border how to call it how to call it border uh, control control. Yeah. Yeah, how you call 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 these guys? Border control, oh, policemen, agents, yeah. agents, agent. Yeah. Wrote you know the long text. Yeah, and I have no trouble anymore. So I think you know I always I was I could you know uh, try your system right. So I think I was yeah. the only uh, one of your testers, I guess. No. Uh, yeah, it's hard to say what you know what stage you're at. It might have been. I know the um, the TSA 
uh, did were using our system. I don't know if they were, are anymore. I, I, uh, uh, but the um, our system generally didn't do that. That was okay. a space that we had. Uh, so we had ways of separating individuals because, yeah, people have the same name. But mm -hmm. it's probably not the same birth date and definitely not the same phone number or other information. So we had a way of separating. That's one of the reasons why we never deleted anything either. So we, we, um, we always had a way to separate people. Mm -hmm. And sometimes data that looked duplicate or irrelevant was relevant all of a sudden with a new piece of data that got added to the stack. So um, that was something that, oh, I don't know. I mean, it could happen with our software, but... It no, it's just fun, but I, it reminded yeah. me, you know, this is my experience, yeah. uh, which was interesting to me. Um, yeah. But yeah, your application... trying to use something. You know, this is one of the things I used to go out and, uh, you know, help people uh, sell this. And and people had written their own systems that did things like that, and then we would show them how it wouldn't do it in our system. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, uh, the application reminds me of Kafka, you know, the Apache Kafka. They yeah. also never delete anything. So they just want to add or, you know, it's just, uh, how to call it, um, immutable storage. Yeah. So you yeah. never delete stuff. You always add, which is very scalable, but of course yeah. needs some more storage. Um, yeah. Interesting, yeah. did it. So which Java technology was used? Do you remember back then? Oh, boy. Um, it was all XML. Mm -hmm. So once again, it was um, it, it was stored on, you can store it on a variety of backend databases. So, of course, we had the all the database storage for XML. So that was one of the things I wrote the you know, XML programming Bible. I covered how you store data in all the database mm -hmm. formats. Um, and then Zalin, uh, Xerxes, and uh, a number of XML application mm -hmm. processing. Uh, we also used, um, oh God, what did we do? We used a lot of multi-threaded capabilities for getting the data, for ingesting mm -hmm. the data, because quite often, uh, you know, you had literally terabytes of data that had to be ingested mm -hmm. fairly quickly and processed. So we were using uh, threads. Uh, we use a lot of uh, LIFO. Um, so just, you know, Java Util and Java XML mostly mm -hmm. would be the class packages mm -hmm. that we would use the most. Um, but yeah, I don't remember anything specific beyond that. It was, uh, yeah. When you left the project or what happened to the project or to you? So it just became boring or you wanted to travel a little bit more? I, I left Microsoft. I'm sorry. I left IBM. <laughs> Microsoft. I, I left IBM and uh, in 2009 uh, and I was working on a couple of startups that just didn't succeed. Uh, mm -hmm. A couple of hardware startups. Uh, one was doing XML processing with hardware. Um, the other one was doing... Um, was it Barracuda, the boxes? No. S yes, similar, similar to those. Okay. Um, where those were security, this was more um, XML processing uh, hardware oriented, so it was fast. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, converting XML to JSON was another one we had, and just dealing with huge amounts of XML in a table format. That was mm -hmm. a, a couple of things. So we had these different startups that just didn't work out. There were a couple of folks from the same team. Uh, and I ended up doing some consulting and then uh, worked for uh, Deloitte, uh -huh. uh, worked for Deloitte and, uh, and they had a company called uh, Deloitte Recap, which was doing processing to help facilitate um, drug testing uh -huh. for uh, not drug testing, like taking your blood, but drug testing for new drugs. Mm -hmm. uh, coming on the market. I thought that was a great project. It was uh, all XML once again, and it had some Lotus Notes in it and a few other things. So anyway, just a few different things I did in the meantime. Um, 
And I had actually interviewed at IBM or at Microsoft um, mm-hmm. in 2005 when they were doing their, um, they had a, a large XML offering push that they were doing. I didn't get a job back then. I uh, didn't mm-hmm. make the interview process. Um, I, it was interesting. Uh, but even with my XML background. And, and you liked Microsoft back then? I mean, you know, if you are from yeah. the Java background, uh, Microsoft in 2005 would not the yeah, place well, to go. You know, there was like a, a strange relation, I would say, right? Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, back then it was was not great, but I was uh, intrigued by the XML aspect of it. Okay. So they were basically, uh, even today, it's interesting. If you take a PowerPoint file, mm-hmm. you know, a PPTX or an XSLX, mm-hmm. that X on the end means it's XML. Uh, and a docx, Uh, in Word, uh, if you change that to a .zip file mm-hmm. and open it, you can see everything in there, and it's all in XML. I'm very uh, aware of it. You know why? Yeah. Because there's an interesting project called Apache Poi. You know Poi? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you can read, actually, uh, the uh, Office documents with uh, Apache Poi, and uh, it's a great Java interface to, to Office documents. Yes. I, I'm, I'm, I haven't looked under the hood, but I'm pretty sure it right, reads everything with X, with XML processing mm-hmm. capabilities in Java. Mm-hmm. So um, the Java XML uh, you, uh, utilities are probably well represented there. Um, but yeah, you could do that. So that's what I was intri- intrigued in is this was, you know, they were the first company that company wide mm-hmm. were going all in on XML. So it seemed like a great opportunity for me. Mm-hmm. And it was for the folks who, who worked on it. Uh, and they got to help participate in the standards mm-hmm. Or XML, uh, which is, I'm laughing a little bit because I don't know if anyone's noticed, but there haven't been any changes to the XML standard <laughs> since uh, since I wrote my book uh, mm-hmm. in 2003 of the mm-hmm. XML uh, Programming Bible. So good work on the standards. You know, it's a lot of work, effort, I guess, that <laughs> not be changed, but that's okay. Um But I was I was interested intrigued in that. That was the selling point for me. Was I was I would be able to participate in the XML standards, and um, I would be able to work in a company that's going all in on XML. Mm-hmm. So, for me at the time, the Java part of it was secondary. It was useful, okay. but it was secondary for me. So you are the XML evangelist. I was I was at the time uh, back in 2005. I was for sure. I was definitely uh, doing a lot of XML consulting work and. I uh, got the job at, at IBM because of my XML and Java background. What so, happened? So you, you left IBM. There was then uh, Deloitte, I think, with you know, the drug discovery. And yeah. you still did Java and XML and Lotus Notes. And what you stick at Deloitte or what happened in between, you know? Okay. So at Deloitte, um, I was working as, uh, yeah, it was about a year and a, God, I can't remember, a year and a half or something at, at Deloitte. And I worked at a couple of other companies. The, 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 The group we were at at Deloitte basically folded, so all of us had to find new work. Uh, I ended up doing some work with um, things that were totally unrelated just to make a living for a couple of years. And then uh, 2011, mm-hmm. uh, the folks who were working on the XML stuff remembered me uh, at Microsoft, and uh, they were creating a new group called MS Open Tech. Okay. Uh, and they said, hey, you know, we should bring Brian in for some interviews. And, uh, you know, because he's he's a Java expert, an XML expert, and he's worked with open source, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, they were great proponents of hiring me. Um, 
So once again, went back up to Redmond, went through the interview process and got the job this time uh, based on my XML and Java skills, which is bizarre for Microsoft. I yeah. Mean, they yeah, Java. Yeah. Um, so at the time, everyone was shaking, scratching their head. You know, what's what's going on here? Why would they hire you? <laughs> I'm like, oh, thanks. But um, yeah, the uh, the the main thing was it was fun. The interview process was good. There were actually some pretty good technical questions and some folks who had some Java background. The main well, one I remember though is uh, one guy. He was like, I don't know anything about Java. Here's my question: What's the difference between JavaScript and Java? So I explained it to him, and okay, <laughs> and he he checked me off as as passing uh, uh, the okay. technical interview for him. Um, that was funny, but uh, yeah, I joined Microsoft at this group called MS Open Tech. So it was mm-hmm. open source, and the hardest part for us was well, there's a lot of hard parts, but convincing people in the open source world, including Java, that Microsoft was serious about this, and also. Even harder was convincing people inside of Microsoft that this is something that should be pursued. Mm-hmm. You know, that was that was the tough part. I mean, you come up. I remember talking to one guy where his he's a VP at the company and uh, he's responsible for a, a product that sells about one point one billion dollars at the time mm-hmm. of revenue. Right. He told us that right off the front in the meeting. You know, my comp- my product right now makes one point one billion dollars a year. Why should I change what I do? <laughs> you know, a good question, still, right? I yeah. mean, I mean, the question is very good, actually, right? So, I yeah, mean. yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, what you don't want to mess that up? That's a lot of money and a lot of people and a lot of uh, important people's careers, everything. Uh, and um, uh, so, you know, we were able to convince him that there were some the things that need to be changed. And I, you know, I got to give kudos to Microsoft's senior leadership team on here, not just because I work for Microsoft, but because they actually genuinely did uh, some good work here. They, they actually managed to convert the whole company. Why they started with it? I mean, this can be only uh, trouble, right? I mean, uh, who, who started yeah. the, the MS Open Tech Group? You know what? I, I got to give credit where credit is due. Uh, you know, people talk about Satya Nadella, and he's great. He's been a wonderful leader. Uh, nothing bad to say about Satya, but it was Steve Ballmer who started MS OpenTech. And uh, Steve, you know, everyone has the perception that when Satya came in, everything changed. But the changes were already happening for a couple of years beforehand. So This is um, crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did, uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because Steve Ballmer, you know, he was, he was uh, he, he certainly changed his tune. But the, tr- the truth is, obviously, he's advised by some pretty good people, including Bill Gates, uh, and uh, you know, and some other folks on the board who are, are brilliant technologists, one and all. And um, Microsoft, it, it, at its essence, is a technical company. You know, I mean, I'm amazed sometimes. You know, uh, when I see a presentation by someone like um, Scott Guthrie, mm-hmm. who you know, I think he has sixty thousand people who report to him. You know, uh, in his org. And he's still on top of all the technology mm-hmm. that that his company, his group runs, which is the cloud and infrastructure group at Microsoft. So um, they, you know, he's he's on top of it. And so they had seen through customer feedback and other things that open source was the future. Uh, and 
you know, they just basically had to keep ahead of it. They could have ended up like some other companies kind of falling behind and not understanding. And the other thing that was big was the cloud, right? So AWS started the cloud. Uh, Here's a bit of trivia. So AWS, Azure, I'm sorry, (laughs) Azure, Amazon Web Services was created. I, I thought in, you would tell me, you know, that it, it started as, as Azure Web Services and it was renamed to, M, to Amazon. So, okay, this is an interesting yeah, story. I yeah, didn't knew it, that, you know. You, you heard it here first. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> no, Amazon Web Services, I used it in my XML programming Bible in 2003. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of the first users of Amazon Web Services. You had to sign up. And back then, you know what Amazon Web Services used to do? You could give it a query of books and it would return XML. Mm-hmm. It would actually return a list of books in XML. So you could search for Java and it would give you uh, a list of books with the keyword Java and it would return that value in XML. So it was a perfect thing for my, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I use it as the base for most of the examples in my XML programming Bible. Um, and, uh, and of course, from there, they evolved and they used uh, Amazon Web Services. I think around 2005, they formally released a cloud. I, one of the things that they were trying to do with Amazon Web Services was figure out what to do with all this excess hardware. That they exactly. Mm-hmm. When they didn't have peak times that they needed it for. Mm-hmm. And the first thing they came up with was this XML listing for books. So you could do a, like an API with XML. Um, and that would just use some of their extra computing power. It was like a little passion project of some folks. And, uh, so I made full use of that, but then they started expanding it and started to sell storage and other things. S3 and SQS, I think were the first services. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. And then, and then from there, they grew into, uh, you know, something that was recognizable by Microsoft as, Uh, a thing you know it was something that they had to look into so microsoft originally created their azure Mm -hmm. uh windows azure right when when Uh, was it you know when when microsoft created azure it's a hard i don't know for sure i'd have to look that up but i think it was i joined in 2011 it already been around for a couple of years so Mm -hmm. uh you know maybe but you uh, ms open tech uh department it seems like it was or that it is maybe, or it was one of the most important departments of Microsoft back then, right? Because uh, if if it was so influential, it, yeah. it, I mean, it it made Microsoft successful again, right? Or not successful yeah. again? It was never not successful, but it will yeah. fail without the department, right? Because of open source Asia, Visual Studio Code, and whatever happens in Microsoft right now. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it would fail, but it would certainly be uh, less of a company than it is now. Definitely for exactly. sure. They, they would still sell office and other things. That was still a lucrative business. Like I say, that you know, we had to go talk to people who sold a billion dollars of yeah. product. We had mm-hmm. to convince them. And uh, so, so yeah, MS OpenTech was created so that we could build a cloud that ran open source software and not just focused on Microsoft stack, which is Windows, C Sharp, .NET. Um, you know, we wanted to make sure that um, our mission was to make sure that anything that a customer wanted to run, they could run on our cloud. So, mm-hmm. of course, the first thing we had to do was get rid of Windows Azure and make it Microsoft Azure. <laughs> that was a little bit of a, a misstep there, but hey, they fixed it quickly. And um, 
And, and, you know, things were off to a start. And we were able to convince folks inside of Microsoft that open source was the way to go. And they were, like I say before, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't just sucking up. Uh, what what is a, your your job actually back then? So what, you were yeah. like evangelist or my title was evangelist. So uh, I was a open source evangelist, and I worked with um, primarily Java and Node because this is funny. They didn't think that Java was a big enough uh, you know, opportunity for one person at Microsoft. So they went Java and Node JS. That was my two specialties, and On top of that, for the first couple of years, I was managing the relationships with uh, Oracle, MongoDB. Um, remember LampStack, Drupal, Joomla, yeah. WordPress. So I was working with all of these folks to make sure that they had market. We have an Azure Marketplace. Uh, mm -hmm. Back then, we had an Azure Marketplace where you could deploy these things onto our Azure App Service. And we created this thing called VM Depot, which is... Um, a virtual machine depot where you had pre-made images, mostly made by Bitnami. Uh, when you would... attended your first Java One, yeah, when was it? Oh, the first Java One? God, I'm gonna say it was 2013. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think it was 2012. I joined in, yeah, it would have been 2013. Um, 2012, I joined in November of 2012. But it was yeah. also the first Java One Microsoft sponsored, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, we had two booths at, uh, I believe that one or yeah, 2013, we have two booths at Java One. Just because the company, uh, MS Open Tech had their own Java One booth, uh, which I, I lobbied for. Uh, and then this group, um, our team foundation server group had a Java offering, uh, which is a team foundation server. It's like uh, version control. Uh, Azure DevOps is the sort of latest iteration of that and or GitHub Actions, if you mm -hmm. think about it that way. So they had their own booth as well. And we didn't even know. This is, you know, big company fun. So they had their own VSTS booth. It was called Visual Studio Team Services. It's a terrible name. But um, they had their own booth. And we even had competing events one night. We didn't know about each other until we got there. And Oracle didn't tell us. Thanks, Oracle. But, uh, yeah, so... Um, We actually had two different booths at that event, and that was kind of funny. So obviously, Java was important to Microsoft. We definitely made an investment. Uh, but yeah, we had two booths there. That was funny. And, and this and was in hotel, right? This the, the booth is yep. in okay. This at is the Hilton Union Square in because uh, the Moscone is where they had Cloud World. Yeah, and then Hilton Union Square, as I recall, is where they had the uh, Java. This one is where we met the first time because you were in the new yeah. of IBM booth. What I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Very in the yeah. So I was at IBM booth and I saw yeah. and there's a Microsoft and not yeah. not enough Microsoft. I saw you know stickers. Yeah. Microsoft loves Linux and Microsoft loves Java. And yeah. I said, what they are, I mean, are they crazy? I thought this was you know Oracle fake or something like this. I think this is <laughs> it is impossible that something like this happens in Java One. Yeah. And then I met you and you were really nice. And afterwards, you offered me a job. So we had a chat and it's okay. Would you like to work with us? It would be really great, but. Yep. I cannot. I'm freelancer, so it's impossible. And yeah, this is how we met that. back then. Yeah. And this was yeah. um, this was uh, this was a really interesting experience because you you all re relaxed and nice. This is what I remember. And the entire Java community, they were completely yeah. confused. I remember, you know, no one yeah. knew what's going on. They 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 they, 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 they were, 
they went to your booth. They asked me what's going on here. I, said, I have no idea. So I know I, yeah. I, I couldn't understand what you're doing there. Right. So this was an interesting yeah. experience. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I I used to say we benefited from low expectations. So um, and you don't. I mean, I gotta say, Microsoft was so scared to be there. I gotta mm-hmm. say, um, I I did a year earlier that year. I did a, a Java user group meeting in Seattle, mm-hmm. and um, the PR team wanted to review my my slides, uh, and the legal team at mm-hmm. Microsoft. I had to have a meeting with them as well. I mean, we went through some hoops to get a Java user group meeting, and all it was was we had a, a couple of guys, Martin Sawicki, uh, hi Martin, if you're out there, um, a few other folks. He's a he's a brilliant developer that we had um, mm-hmm. working with us, and. We built uh, with some consultants and a small team uh, Eclipse plugins and IntelliJ plugins, but mm-hmm. mainly we were putting together our Eclipse plugin. So you could do things like uh, deploy to an Azure app service from inside of Eclipse, uh, and you could log into Azure and check. And we even had a um, a test runtime that you could use inside of Eclipse to test your application before you deploy it. Um, so we had some cool stuff, and we had a lot of deployment things. We were working with Chef and Puppet at the time. So there was a lot we had to talk about at a Java user group meeting. So we said, okay, let's go. You know, To me, it was a no-brainer. Let's go. I've been, I attended a few, and then I said, oh, let's go. You know, it's like 30 people. It's when you became Java champion. What's that? When you became Java champion. You are a Java champion, right? Yes. I became a Java champion. It was a couple of years ago now, um, 2000. Boy, I want to say 2020 or 21. Uh, ah, I thought uh, before. I was just curious whether you became Java champion before you joined Microsoft or afterwards. This was after, after. After. Okay. So that's But we have to stop here. Too. It goes too long. Okay. So okay. I would like to reinvite you back and okay. cover exactly the point from Java 1, you know, to, to more significant yeah. what happens with Java and Microsoft right now with you, right? So yeah. Which yeah. secret departments are you joining right now? You know, which are <laughs> retransforming, or which on, on which replication projects are you working right now? Even more interesting, you know. Um, well, here, here at Microsoft, all we do now is we go to ChatGPT and we say, uh, you know, yeah. what, what department am I working on now? And uh, it tells us. No, yeah, so. sure. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope, yeah. Very good. Where people can find you on, on the internet? And uh, no, you have some links, Microsoft links, which are relevant to our conversation on. Yeah. So uh, B Benz on Threads, Twitter, Great Mastodon, name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, LinkedIn, of course. Uh, and uh, I have a really embarrassingly out of date blog at brianbenz.com mm-hmm. uh, that I have to start updating more uh, after my vacation. That's what I keep telling myself. But um, yeah, uh, those are the places to find me. So just search for B-Benz, mm-hmm. B-B-E-N-Z or Z, uh, and um, and also BrianBenz.com. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And we'll see you at some events coming up, hopefully, in the next uh, little while as well. But yeah. Those are uh, looking forward to continuing this conversation. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, and uh, I never met you know such a passionate uh, XML evangelist. Actually, you know, usually uh, <laughs> it is. I'm less passionate about XML. I have to admit, I was really glad that in Java there were annotations, which were somehow inspired by C sharps attributes. I think it's called in uh, C sharp, like you know, additional additional metadata on methods, 
and yeah. we could remove XML, but you are really passionate, and um, I'm really glad, you know, uh, that um, yeah, that I met someone like you, and I'm really curious about the where the conversation is going, you know, uh, to cover the last ten years. So yeah, I know we didn't we didn't get too far there. I I, I really enjoyed the conversation as well. This is great. I'm uh, remembering a bunch of stuff that I I don't think about these days. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.